This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Experience points. 20th century myths. American weird. And Christopher Marlowe. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The scritch of graph paper and the clatter of dice tell us that we have once more ventured into the gaming hut and ducking past shag carpeting and flat panel walls, we arrive at a question, and our question is a question of experience points. Are they a relic, or are they a tool uh, that we can use valuably in, say, more genre emulative design? Robin, do you have thoughts on the experience point? Right. So the experience point uh, came to us, speaking of the scritching of graph paper and the shagging of shag carpet, uh, we have an appropriately uh, retro-tooled gaming hut to talk about this this week. Comes to us, of course, from D and D, which offers up this really powerful mechanism for its essential gaming activity that it wants to reward you for, which is the systematic finding fights through secret doors, getting into fights, toting up the treasure, gaining experience points, and leveling up. And that is a huge part of the appeal of that game that continues to make it the leader in uh, role-playing in all of its different incarnations now. There's been a D&D schism, of course, but it's still the hugely dominant game that most people enjoy. And one of the reasons that it uh, still has that appeal is that it has that very clear, simple reward mechanism. And you can see that translated into all sorts of other kinds of electronic games now. And, and even, you know, weird little social games or, you know, iPad or iPhone games that you play that have nothing to do with busting down doors and, and killing goblins and taking their stuff will have a reward mechanism where you level up or you gain gems. And it has become actually part of the economic model of games now where you're uh, not only earning your goodies, but you're buying your goodies that cause you to level up. But not all games are trying to do what D&D does. Other games are trying, for example, among many other things, to emulate genre sources and to help you tell stories the way that stories are structured in other genres. So whether that's a, a tale of investigation or a tale of uh, super heroes fighting supervillains or a, a game of space exploration, all of these games are drawing to various degrees, consciously or otherwise, in the case of Gumshoe, for example, very consciously, or uh, Feng Shui very consciously, trying to create the experience that you see on the page in fiction or that you see on the television or, or movie screen. And so the question then becomes, how much are these stories driven by the constant accumulation of a resource which then enables you to get better and better over time. And that if you look at fictional sources, you're not really seeing so much a slow and constant 
build of power over time as you're seeing an origin story or a hero's journey where the hero in Act 1 often gets knocked down and then has to undergo some sort of spiritual change, perhaps to become an iconic hero, perhaps to become a dramatic hero, undergoes a montage sequence in which they train and uh, gain the abilities they need to overcome the big obstacle, and then go on to overcome that big obstacle. And after that, the story is either over, uh, you don't have a continuing cyclical iconic career, or the iconic character is created and achieves a state of equilibrium, after which you do not see them constantly improving in abilities over time. Sometimes you see, you know, a new gimmick will arrive and the character might get a new superpower and a new blade or, or, or something that you need as a MacGuffin for a story. But usually the, the power level of the iconic heroes we follow in fiction is kind of established and set. So the question then becomes, do you want to install experience points in your game because people expect it? Or can you, in this day and age, now start to get away from the power of that paradigm and that reward mechanism? And uh, do you have a... I mean, the way you present it makes me think that you do believe that we can get away with uh, not having experience points in game design. Although I think that there is certainly an argument to be made, first of all, that many iconic characters, even if they don't visibly increase in power and uh, to hit bonus, they gain new things that they can do with their old power, or they gain uh, powers that they always had, they just didn't bother to tell you about. Like, for example, at the very beginning of Study in Scarlet, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Watson writes up Sherlock Holmes's character sheet, you know, expert boxer and single stick player, but we don't really see him start using his power of, of super strength to, you know, straighten out bent uh, pokers or to uh, take down uh, villains with a single punch or using his bartitsu, the uh, oriental uh, style of wrestling, until later on in the story. And that that you can emulate uh, the the, the needs of the series genre, at least, to continuously present their character with a new awesome thing to do just to keep the audience from getting bored or just to keep the writer from getting bored, as I suspect was the case with Doyle, that representation can be used uh, as an experience point justifier or a theoretical underpinning. So I, I think that I, I need you to, to come down one way or the other, Robin, since you've put experience points into your gumshoe games. Obviously, you think that there's at least some reason you're doing it, or are you doing it merely because players expect it and they'll show up in uh, Toronto with uh, well-behaved pitchforks and, uh, and uh, carefully banked torches? I do kind of feel that players expect it, that there is some sort of ritual tradition of the reward at the end of the session that is uh, powerful as sort of a punctuation mark and part of what, you know, it gives people a little ring of the dopamine at the end of the game that they got something out of it. And so uh, even Gumshoe, as you observe, has an experience point mechanism at the end, and that enables you to go back to your character sheet and look at it again and sort of uh, add things. It doesn't have this steep power curve that you get in a game that's revolves around the gaining of experience points. So you never get fireball. You might get a you know another point of intimidation to use as a cool thing in a situation, or you know another point of athletics, which really gives you an incremental benefit. So at this point, I guess I'm still at the point of providing an end of session thing that is supposed to feel like a reward without changing the feel of play. So that you're, you definitely don't go through a 
uh, a gumshoe series feeling that the characters have radically ramped up their uh, abilities from the, the beginning of the series to the end. And the, the things that people will take away from it afterwards are not the, you know, new, amazing, crunchy things that they got to add. Although some of the games do have uh, crunchy bits in them. For example, you know, in Mutant City Blues, you can add to your mutant powers and that gets you a little closer to that. You know, you there is an equivalent of fireball in, in that game or, you know, you can get more stuff, you can get more enhancements and so forth over time in Ashen Stars. But that, you know, in each of those cases, those fit into and reify the, the themes and, and tropes of those games. But what might be interesting to explore are different alternatives to experience points that are even more strictly genre emulative. So, for example, you could move to more of a situation where you have to create explicit situations in play that enable you to add a new bolt or lever to your character so that if you want to become the master of Sherlock Holmes's martial art, you have to have a scene in the story where you justify that and make that happen. And you have to overcome an in-story obstacle in order to get the end result that you want. But then the question becomes if that, would that have the perverse effect of changing those games from being about what they're about, about solving mysteries, for example, and becoming more explicitly a power hunt the way that D&D is awesomely a power hunt. Or that Ars Magica manages to sort of blend that sort of uh, genre emulative for, a, as far as I can tell, non-existent genre. Um, uh, does, but the design of Ars Magica is very much toward a specific style and feel of play, but also by making the, the power hunt explicitly part of the genre or of the story that it's trying to emulate for a third of its characters, it, 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 uh, it really rewards that behavior as opposed to having them uh, compete with each other. Uh, I, th I think that you could certainly look at a, a martial arts game like uh, Feng Shui or, or another martial arts game in which, you know, traveling to the temple to learn the, the strike of a thousand flaming Buddhas or whatever is a crucial part of the game or, or, or the genre to be emulated and make the quest for more personal power uh, part of that uh, story, much as if you were doing, say, a, a game based on Sharps Rifles, the notion that you have to, you know, succeed at a mission or uh, really in, engage in a story sense with the, with an obstacle in order to be promoted in rank or to get better at being a rifleman makes sense within the story of, of that um, uh, of that genre, which is about the aspirational rise of a of a working class or lower class Englishman up to uh, you know re respect. And the same thing happens obviously in Hornblower. Right, and the existence of experience points in a system is not binary. It's not just an on or off switch. There's uh, different ways that you can award experience points. And you could theoretically do progression without experience points, although we tend uh, mostly not to. So, for example, in Gumshoe, you get two build points at the end of each session. So that's just, you know, basically a little thing that you tend to, and it's a filigree on, on the system. It's interesting, I think, that if you look at D&D over time, that the extent to which experience points drive play and drive behavior and are addictive has, I think, lessened over each edition as it has become a more sensibly balanced game and it has become harder to hose the system. I, I'm not sure it's technically hosing the system. It's kind of explicitly designed that way. Right. And, and the, the system, <laughs> as the system becomes less hosable, it becomes... 
less interesting to try and house it. And you start to think about experience points less and you think about the what rewards you can earn so that I think you're probably less likely today, even as a group of 12 and 13 year olds to, you know, who can we kill now just to level up is probably less of a thing than when the experience wards were much more like a punctuated reward mechanism where you could get a magic item really early, sell it for cash and, you know, jump up three levels uh, as opposed to the more careful progression where the doling out of experience points is so carefully measured now that it, they might as well just, you know, say at the end of each session, you are further sessions away from leveling up again. But that takes it out off the table as a motivating factor. I know that 13th Age says, at least as one recommended possibility, that, you know, if you just play so that every three sessions you'll level up or whatever, that that's your goal and counting experience points is 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 not even part of the game that the 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 goal is to is to play out the experience of going from zero to hero in a exciting fantasy world and experience points are just a kludge uh that allowed you to do bookkeeping but now that we all know what we're trying to do we don't need to worry about the about the it's, it's sort of a post-monetary economy for um uh, for 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 gameplay and for right. game advancement so so there you have progression without really without experience points. I guess mm -hmm. they're sort of there in a, a ritualized fashion, or are they there at all? I, I don't remember. I'm fairly sure that they must be there in at least some fashion, because uh, the game is, is designed as a, as a fantasy heart healer, as, as very much a um, uh, brothers and sisters, why are we fighting when we could be fighting orcs type, uh, type experience. And I'm sure that there must be experience points in there. I'm not uh, desperately familiar with all the weeds of of that system, but I I'm fairly sure that there was a part that said, "Look, you and I both know what this is about. Let's just you know advance everyone a third of a level every adventure, and that'll be fun." And certainly in you know in D and D games that I've played as a uh, creaky uh, uh, a grown up, um, we have been more likely just to say, you know, uh, for example, in the 4E game that we played, it was every every adventure is a level, and so. You know, we got one adventure at, you know, first and one adventure at second and ran it up to, I think, eighth before uh, everyone separated. Right. And that's almost as if th the things that excited one when one was 12 are different than the things that excites one when one is a, a codger. And I think that that may be part of why we're seeing uh, experience points slowly drop out of the, um, uh, out of the, the, the dialectic of, of game design, because fewer of the games are being played by 11 and 12 year olds and you're getting... Uh, you know, as a percentage anyway. And, and so you're getting fewer of the sort of design feedback that, that feed that kind of design. Although it's worth noting that, of course, when Gary and, and uh, Dave were designing the game, they were, they were closer to codgery than, than, uh, than they were to 12 uh, at any rate. And I think another part of it is that the dopamine hit of instant advancement and leveling up is one of the other things that uh, computerized uh, uh, adventure gaming does really, really well. And our notion that we're going to compete with them on their on their solid uh, ground on their home turf may be uh, rather we may be thinking let's not try and replicate something that you can get better and faster with Fable or Diablo or whatever let's try and do something like genre emulation or like um, uh, uh, the, the the sort of broad spectrum uh, the feat choice and advancement choice that you get in later D and D editions. Um, we'd be able to to build that out and sort of explore this other area of play space that the computer game doesn't do as well yet. Right, because ultimately in its original form, what the experience point does is rewards you for continuing to play. Mm -hmm. And so the question then 
becomes what other things can you reward and in uh, what way can you reward them and to what extent is a reward even necessary except as a uh, ritual gesture at the end of a session. And speaking at the end of the sessions, I think we're at the end of this segment. So everyone uh, go up a third of a level? Yes, and uh, if you cash in your uh, magic swords, I have a special deal for you on the side. to Ask Ken and Robin. In this exciting episode, our pal Darren Watts brings up something Ken referred to earlier. Uh, you referred to the two great myths of the 20th century, and you uh, mentioned what one of them was, and of course I've forgotten what the one you mentioned was. It was zombies. It? The zombies. Romero zombie is one of the two great myths of the 20th century. So uh, Darren says, Peshaw, uh, and I, I paraphrase, uh, how can it possibly uh, be one of the two when that means you have to leave out either Superman or Godzilla? What gives, Ken? Um, well, uh, Darren is, uh, in, <laughs> as all right-thinking people are, in love with Superman and Godzilla and should not be um, uh, criticized for that. But he, he does overlook the key uh, modifier there, which is of the 20th century. Superman is the latest incarnation of the demigod from heaven who comes down to fix our lives for us with uh, displays of goodness and of uh, supernatural power. And that is, as has been pointed out by you know t tens of people, uh, some of them qualified to do so, uh, a story that goes back you know to uh, Hercules, it goes back to Jesus, it goes back to any number of, uh, of, of supernaturally powerful savior figures. Now, the fact that Superman is is our American version, not even our 20th century version, but our American version of that, does not take away from the fact that there are other figures uh, that are fundamentally co-equal to Superman in that way. Uh, that are uh, that that myth specifically is is no more innately of the 20th century than any of the other sort of uh, 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 timeless myths that they incarnate. Similarly, Godzilla is. Uh, a uh, is a uh, basically it's the Abaddon it's the or the Apollyon rather the divine retribution for committing a grave sin. Uh, it is the beast of apocalypse, and that uh, is re relevantly the um, uh, like I say um, uh, Apollyon from the Book of Revelation. It's uh, the Midgard serpent. It's all of the things that are going to come out uh, once we have uh, uh, screwed the pooch and set us right probably by killing most of us. And Godzilla is an apocalyptic monster in exactly that sense, that sense of a sinful act that is being uh, retributed by this horrific beast. And it specifically speaks to the Japanese sense that they are both sinned against and sinning in that they uh, were uh, nuked and then went to develop nuclear power as opposed to turning away from horrible, dangerous Western science and back to the uh, calm verities of the floating world. And Godzilla is a specific Japanese response uh, to the apocalyptic monster, and it's a response to their specific apocalypse, actually, of 1945. So in a way, Godzilla is a incarnation of that myth for the 20th century. But the myths, and I think I should probably have said mythemes, because obviously a zombie 
uh, the Romero zombies are not a myth by themselves. They're an, uh, a mytheme, an element of a myth, uh, although the zombie apocalypse would be a myth. Right. So, so you're setting the bar very high here. It's not good enough to just create a new localized expression of an existing uh, symbol, mm -hmm. that you have to create an all-new symbol and emotional impulse that has intense resonance for people and becomes part of the broader culture. So it's not every day or even every century that that happens. Right. And, and I think that the 20th century has, as I say, I think created two of them. And one of them is the Romero zombie, the, uh, the mass uh, man as danger, as uh, infection, as, um, uh, as, as simultaneously our inevitable fate and our, uh, our undeserved predator. Um, you know, the, the Romero, like all mythemes, it, it's both seemingly a simple set of symbols and as complex as you want to drive it right. down. And in one sense, it's germ theory personified. Right. And in order to have that new myth appear, we would have to have germ theory. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it does require a, a certain level of, of, I guess, scientific knowledge at the basis of it. And that's the same thing that Cthulhu requires, because Cthulhu, of course, is the other great myth of the 20th century. And Cthulhu is the unearned apocalypse. Cthulhu is the recognition that mankind is alone in the universe and what that means. And what that means is that just like everything else, just like dinosaurs, just like the, the happy little trilobites, just like everything, we are going to go extinct and no one will care. And that is the message of Cthulhu. And that is a specifically 20th century myth, not only because it applies to our sort of new understanding of a, uh, a despiritualized universe of um, uh, a, uh, an atheist cosmos, it also applies to 20th century experiences of alienation from uh, the world and that the notion that the world when properly understood destroys us I think is a very 20th century expression of a world without uh, a spiritual component and I think that even the atheists of the um, uh, of, of say the Roman era the, the last great period that we had uh, anything like uh, mainstream atheism uh, they did not see uh, their atheism as presaging a Cthulhoid destruction, what they saw it as was basically an excuse to have a picnic. And that's, you know, whatever else is, it is the response. It has not been the response of the 20th century. Even our, even our leisure and recreation have had a frenetic, uh, degree to them that is not present in earlier centuries. And I think that Cthulhu, by embodying that uh, combination of alienation and inevitable, uh, scientific destruction is again a myth of the 20th century. And whether or not Cthulhu or the Romero zombies survive as long as the uh, uh, supernatural savior from the sky has survived is perhaps an open question. But there will be supermans as long as there are mans, I'm fairly sure. And we can only uh, wonder whether or not people will look back at, um, uh, at the Romero zombie and be as baffled by it as we are by guys who walk around with their heads in their chests, which was a powerful myth for a bunch of people up till medieval times, and then we stopped hearing about it. And the Lovecraftian mythology in particular is very 20th century in that it's sort of almost sort of postmodern before there was postmodernism in that it is an anti-myth. Mm -hmm. It is the myth of the atheist who is angry at God for not existing and <laughs> projects that because, of course, uh, the the argument is is that the universe is indifferent, but of course... Once you start personifying Cthulhu and Chubb Niggurath and Hester and the gang, that they 
acquire the characteristics of older mythic monsters and become more traditionally uh, averse to us and more traditionally sort of the, the adversary figure just because it is uh, very difficult to imagine the unimaginable, which of course is the whole uh, core idea behind uh, the mythos, and so that if you are not uh, careful, they slip back into their uh, from anti-myth back into regular flavored myth. Yeah, and certainly Lovecraft does that himself when he is uh, writing in the spirit of Arthur Machen in the Dunwich Horror. You have the eruption of Yogg-Sothoth onto into our space-time is not an inevitable action. It's a it's a bad action done by an evil wizard, and uh, he is uh, writing in that in that vein because he is writing uh, a Arthur Machen story, and Arthur Machen uh, does not believe in the desacralized universe. Rather, the opposite. Uh, Arthur Machen believes in almost a pantheist universe in which everything has spiritual consequence. And so, uh, when Lovecraft is sort of saying, "All right, what does my universe look like in the hands of a uh, a, a writer at least as great as myself?" That's what you get out of the Dunwich Horror. And similarly, when August Derleth, who is a devout Roman Catholic, looks at the Cthulhu Mythos, he says, well, that can't be right. <laughs> These guys have to be Satans and angels, and I have to sort of straighten that out and make sure that everyone understands that that's the way the universe really works. That there is, you know, a good uh, elder god, there's Nodens, Jesus, and there's Cthulhu, Devil, and we're going to get that straightened out. Now, wh when I was trying to think what your other myth was going to be, because I had a feeling it wasn't either Superman or Godzilla, um, <laughs> I was trying to come up with what alternate choices would be, and I thought there was uh, some possibility of, since there's sort of a, you know, just a little more like a decade overlap into the, the 19th century, that the serial killer uh, might have qualified uh, on your list. It's certainly a huge preoccupation of uh, pop culture that has uh, grown, and it's certainly uh, bigger uh, as an expression of pop culture. If you pie charted out, then either zombies or Cthulhu, certainly, who's sort of a, a below-the-radar uh, myth in, in pop culture still. And uh, certainly he uh, first arrives in our consciousness with uh, Jack the Ripper, but the idea of the man as monster and man as predator uh, has a huge uh, footprint. So I was wondering if you uh, were going to grandfather that in somehow. Uh, the serial killer, first of all, um, in our current myth of it, Jack the Ripper... If you look at the way that they respond to the Ripper in the 1880s and 1890s, they're responding to him in a very Victorian fashion. It's very much a, this is the kind of thing that happens when you have a place as horrible as Whitechapel, is, is sort of their response. It's, it's very much a here-be-dragons type response to urban planning. And it's actually only in the 20th century that you start having the psychological look at the Ripper, the whole, um, uh, you know, um, is he... A, uh, a figure who's, uh, who hates women for this reason, or is he, uh, what, what, what's going on in the Ripper's head type questions are, are getting asked mythically, uh, beginning with The Lodger, which was written, I think, in 1905, 1910, something like that. And that's really where you begin to see the serial killer in our psychoanalytical fashion that we've seen him now, all the way, you know, sort of the, the, the pinpoint of it being Norman Bates, the ultimate, uh, Freudian, uh, mama's boy. But the serial killer as a myth, as the notion that the man is hiding within him a dangerous predatory uh, evil, and possibly supernatural evil, as, for example, Hannibal Lecter clearly is, is a demon. Uh, if you look back at, say, werewolf trials in France in the late 16th or Germany in the early 17th, 
you see exactly that same story happening. And the werewolves that were tried were probably, in fact, serial killers, uh, made more god-awful by the fact that the whole country was undergoing you know, civil war and famine. And so that's why there was an immediate social urge to find you know, something uh, demonic to, to pin things on. And when you look at uh, the uses that we put the, social, the serial killer to, again, we're using him to diagnose society. And instead of uh, finding the works of Satan, we're finding you know, an inability to talk to our, our mother or, or, or our, to um, uh, have uh, enlightened gender attitudes or whatever ridiculous uh, notion people are drawing out of uh, the careers of Ed Gein and uh, his ilk. So I, I think that the serial killer is certainly a 20th century formation of the werewolf in the same way that Superman is a 20th century formation, uh, and specifically a 20th century American formation of Hercules. But I think that if you look at the, the serial killer over time, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of these sorts of stories of uh, people that go around within, within society and uh, engage in sort of bloody, uh, dangerous sexual uh, or... or generally fundamentally sinful crimes. Uh, the werewolf's crime was usually cannibalism uh, rather than uh, uh, sexual perversion. But it, it, again, if you're, in, if you're in a famine society, you think of different things. Right. And of course, that's still part of the myth, whether it is the uh, real-life mythology of an Ed Gein or the imaginary mythology of a Hannibal, that mm -hmm. the uh, cannibalism is, is right there in the rhyme scheme in the last yeah, instance. Exactly. Um, the other uh, possibility I came up with, I, I had to refute due to the unfortunate example of the uh, French Revolution not being in the 20th century. But for a while, I was thinking well, you were going to go if for only. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, go for the utopia that one achieves through mass murder, uh, which of course is the most impactful myth I would argue of the 20th century yes. between the Nazi movement and uh, communism at its various tentacles and. Uh, the Cambodian Rousseau flavored uh, version of uh, of that that you got with uh, with Paul Pot and that you uh, uh, certainly mass murder by one's leaders is not a 20th century innovation, but the idea of the all-consuming ideology uh, certainly has an element of re reforming and and reshaping uh, various old myths in a really dangerous uh, and uh, horrible way. And, and again, the notion of building the kingdom of heaven on earth is a classic uh, heresy. Uh, and again, it goes back in practice, at the very latest, to uh, the Munster uh, Anabaptist revolutionaries in the 1540s who had their own little Pol Pot, their own little uh, year zero there in the town of Munster when they took over and decided that they were going to build the kingdom of heaven right there in Munster, Germany, and everyone who wasn't uh, suitable for the king of heaven was going to get killed. And I'm fairly sure that you can go farther back and find various uh, heretical outbreaks of people attempting, you know, what literally Paul Pot was trying to do, what Rousseau uh, thought that the French Revolution should do, what, uh, you know, Lenin and Stalin were doing, uh, to build the perfect society on, you know, as many corpses as it took. And, you know, again, the 20th century has, has brought um, uh, a superior technique to the process, but it has not necessarily uh, driven the uh, the impulse. Although, in that context, what I was wondering if you were going to mention was Alfred Rosenberg's book, The Myth of the 20th Century, which is um, uh, one of the sort of uh, central ideological texts of the Nazi movement. And the myth in this case was the myth of racial world revolution. And uh, Rosenberg was using the term myth in the sort of empowering sense, as opposed to the "this is not true" sense that we hear myth now, he meant that the um, uh, that the, the 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 story that you tell yourself 
of who you are, the sort of um, uh, theological definition of myth is that uh, the, the rise of the swastika and the unchaining of the Aryans was the great myth of the 20th century. And certainly in terms of the this is not true myth, uh, it's it, it bids fair to be uh, one of the great myths, but I, it's not the myth in the sense that I'm talking about. Right. It's, sadly, it's not sui generis. <laughs> no. Uh, again, although uh, Rosenberg's specific iteration of it was uh, fairly sui generis, which is why I think it's a lot of why Nazism has the specific flavor and the specific pull to it that you know Mussolini's fascism or uh, Franco's phalangism or even Stalinism doesn't have now. Uh, you know, Stalinism is like a poor second to that. Right. Of, of all of these expressions, it was the most... Uh, self-consciously, explicitly mythic, where they, they were mm -hmm. consciously trying to design a myth, whereas if you were to tell a doctrinaire communist that he is constructing an alternate mythic system, uh, he, of course, would uh, become quite offended because he's building the alternative to all myths and beliefs. Yeah, but again, he he does that because that's the specific language within which uh, Marx, when he talks about the specter of revolution, and then specifically Stalin, when he's uh, literally rebuilding the, the culture and uh, and belief system of the Soviet Union as, as much as he can from the ground up, certainly before he has to turn to the church in the 40s to save him from the Nazis. Um, uh, he's doing everything that you would do to create a myth, except calling it a myth, because in the 20th century, the way you reify a myth is you say, it's not a myth, it's scientific truth. And certainly there was a big chunk of that going on in the Nazi empire as well. But I think that the specifics, that the specific blend of uh, that uh, Rosenberg and uh, the Nazi ideologists achieved has been, you know, <laughs> uh, fairly unfortunately compelling. And the only thing we can do about it, I guess, is uh, to call back to the previous uh, episode use them as orcs whenever we can, and that way at least we, we take uh, the myth back. Uh, and if we're getting self-referential, that means it's time to move to another hut. Weirdly enough, the um, uh, clean fluorescent lighting and bare uh, countertops of the Science Hut have no beakers. They have no uh, Van de Graaff generators or Jacob's Ladders. They have only a series of tiresome books, which means it must be a social science hut here in the Science Hut. <laughs> um, so, Robin, you have uh, stumbled, however, on something interesting in the social sciences, which is certainly not impossible. Uh, what have you stumbled on that has led you to... Um, uh, give the hut its ritual rubdown and sterile cleaning. Well, I, given that my uh, esteemed partner in this podcast is, is uh, <laughs> nothing else, a, an exceptional American and an American exceptionalist, uh, it was interesting to uh, stumble upon an article about uh, one of the uh, big shifts of thinking in the realm of uh, anthropology and sociology and uh, associated uh, attempts to figure out uh, what human nature is to the extent that there is a human nature. And of course, that's part of the big fraught battle that has been going on for uh, more than a generation now between the forces of uh, cultural anthropology, who uh, broadly limbed are interested in uh, understanding our subjectivity as we attempt to understand other cultures and looking for the uh, specifics that distinguish cultures from one another and uh, very broadly speaking on the other side you get your sociobiologists or evolutionary psychologists who are uh, quite often looking for the core mechanism at the uh, base of, of human thought and trying to find what it is that 
connects us all uh, to one another. And uh, each side accuses the other of being political, and each side accuses the other of being anti-science. And along comes this uh, paper based on a discovery by a guy named Joe Henrik, uh, along with uh, Stephen Hine and Ara Norenzayan, uh, have discovered that uh, a lot of social science experiments take place on subjects who are, uh, if not American and if not usually graduate students, uh, in generally weird, which is uh, Western, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. And it turns out that if you compare the results of uh, these social, classic social science experiments and do them across cultures, that not only do you get very different results from people fulfilling all of those qualities, but the Americans in particular are way to one end of the scale, uh, meaning that a lot of the things that we have uh, seen used as sort of parables that explain all of human behavior, perhaps through an evolutionary lens, turn out more to explain the behavior of uh, perhaps American grad students. Mm -hmm. So one of, one of the classic experiments is one in which uh, you are told that you have a hundred bucks and you can go up to somebody else and uh, you have to share some amount of that money in order to get the rest of the hundred bucks. And you have to tell them that that's what the deal is. And then you find out whether they accept or refuse that offer. And that's, uh, it's very difficult to find a, uh, book about, uh, social science or behavior or, uh, human nature, uh, in any sort of scientific context that doesn't cite that study. And it's supposed to tell us about, uh, you know, the fundaments of, uh, social cooperation. So uh, the way the study is usually conducted, the person who is told about this arrangement becomes indignant if you don't offer them close to about 40 bucks. And uh, in game theory, of course, you should be able, willing, perfectly willing to settle for a dollar because that's a dollar that you wouldn't otherwise get. Mm -hmm. But once your fairness mechanism kicks into play, you uh, become outraged and become more focused on depriving the other person of the rest of that money if they're not treating you fairly than you would on a pure calculation. But Henrik did this experiment uh, on the Machiguengua people and found out that they got a completely different result because that's a much more cooperative society. And so the desire to punish the other person for being unfair was not part of the equation. And they actually, you know, solved the, uh, the, the Kobayashi Maruda and went, well, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take 10 bucks. Um, and so that fostered the understanding that a lot of these experiments that we've been using as supposedly telling us about human nature have just been telling us about the very specific culture in which these experiments take place. And I thought what was, and, and that seems obvious once you say it, and in fact, that's kind of received an acceptance within these uh, areas of study that surprised even the authors of the study, because it is so obvious once you say it. But I thought that uh, for the sake of the podcast, it was very interesting to discover that uh, Americans in particular were not just sort of in the middle of the weird scale, but they were off at one end. Well, I, th I think that um, uh, certainly Americans would argue that we are the uh, most Western, most educated, richest, uh, most industrial, and most democratic people around. And so if those are your 
those are your qualifiers, of course we're going to be setting the bar for the rest of the world. Uh, <laughs> I think certainly that a lot of it is sort of a, a, a selection bias problem because all of these social science experiments were designed by Americans or by people who are very, very closely identified with American social science. And so they're going to design them from within the American paradigm because that's the paradigm that they're going to think that is going to give them answers. You know, some a New Guinean uh, tribesman coming up with uh, social science experiments is not even going to come up with any of the same ones that we have, even if he is, you know, a John Nash-level game theorist. Uh, nor, in fact, are they going to come up with social science experiments. <laughs> yes. No, they're, they're going to have a much better uh, set of things to do with their life uh, involving um, uh, killing pigs and, uh, and daywax. But the, the sort of the degree to which people are, are accepting this without realizing the degree to which it undermines everything they've been doing for a century and a half, it reminds me of when um, uh, the Pope's uh, saw Copernicus's research, and the popes would have arguments there in the Curia about whether or not they should let uh, Copernican uh, science be taught in Catholic universities. And some of the popes were like, sure, I don't see the problem with it. The sun can be God, and then we can just sort of, you know, re-establish a, a symbolic uh, language of astronomy. And I think it makes more sense that the sun is God than the earth is God, because that sends a better spiritual message. And there was a lengthy a dispute within the Curia, and it was sort of coming around to Copernicus is okay until Galileo managed to write a particularly badly tempered uh, explication of Copernican theory and uh, bring the whole thing to a head. And so the anti-Copernicans kind of won the day in that trial. But the whole notion that you could upset what, what at that time was one-sixth of the scientific uh, universe completely without having any knock-on effects in the rest of your scientific culture. It, it looks to me that these guys are, are doing the same things where they look at it and they say, oh, look, we've, we've learned something valuable and multicultural as opposed to, no, what you've learned is that every single experiment that you've ever done is invalid and you have to tear your science out and start over again. Well, but I think that's being taken as an exciting prospect, right? Is that let, let's go and, and do the marshmallow experiment in every culture in the world. Yeah, yeah but, the, but the problem is that the, the body of of applied uh, uh, learning that they're attempting to to use these marshmallow experiments in every country of the world to buttress is itself suspect. Uh, you know, it's something like 90% of brain imaging uh, work has been done on Americans. 96% of all psychological studies in the last uh, decade have been done on Westerners, 70% of them on Americans. I mean, these numbers just are ridiculously unrepresentative. It's as though... It's as though you were trying to uh, test for oil, and the only place you drilled was in San Diego County. And you'd be like, well, apparently the world is half oil. Great. <laughs> you, you just, you, there's, there's, no, there's no scientific basis to it. And I, I think that these guys are sort of, like you say, they're seeing sort of the opportunity to get more grants to go out and do the same work only in, you know, an exotic different country. But they're not seeing that all of the structure that they're trying to use this work to bolster is itself based on these uh, flawed, fundamentally flawed uh, psychological experiments that every single uh, thing that people think they know in the social sciences potentially could come tumbling down as a result of this. Right. And even the, the whole point of the inquiry of breaking down how the brain works uh, in an analytical fashion, is, as the writer of the original article points out, is itself a part of the weird viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are other bits of it that I found very interesting, too, is that this goes beyond just your response to kind of game theory experiments, but they've discovered that people 
perceive the world literally differently and that people raised in different cultures and different circumstances have a different rate at identifying optical illusions. So that some of the classic optical illusions where you're uh, meant to uh, distinguish whether two lines that are differently feathered are equal or different, that people who are raised in an urban environment are uh, particularly prone to seeing uh, certain optical illusions, and people raised in an outdoor environment perceive those illusions very differently because their brains have learned to process visual information differently depending on what shapes they see around them. And we uh, in the Western world are in a world of lines and squares and rectangles and people in the natural world are in a world of fractals and so they literally uh interpret the size of lines differently in these optical illusions yeah um marshall Sollins, uh and university of chicago anthropologist uh did some research that i can't find the um uh the specific site for uh, at this moment but his argument was that even such fundamental things as colors are culturally dependent, that it's not a just matter of re light refracted at different wavelengths into your retina, but how you perceive whether or not maroon is the same color as scarlet, or whether you perceive that green even exists, is a culturally specific uh, uh, determination. And uh, he got himself into all kinds of trouble, because, of course, that leads you through the back door back into biological anthropology, which is that, you know, different races have different, you know, uh, physical responses and blah, blah, blah. And... Um, He's making a cultural argument, not a rate, not a, a biological argument, obviously. But in a world in which nature and nurture coexist, it can be very easy to mistake the one for the other. But the notion that, for example, if you look back in Homer, uh, nothing is described as as green, right? That there's no there, there there's no use of the color green in in Greek literature until fairly late in the classical period. And his argument is they didn't perceive green as green; they thought it was part of blue. Right, and this goes to the whole point of inquiry about, you know, are people in the in historical cultures, are we imposing our understanding of quote unquote human nature on them, or are they in fact alien beings? That there are uh people who argue that the entire uh consciousness of the ancient Greeks was utterly different and alien from ours. But if you look at their literature, you look at things and you find stories and you identify with them. And so that introduces a, another huge uh, question mark that is essentially unresolvable. Yeah, there's um, there's there's other, uh, obviously, uh, uh, ways to, to talk about human nature. The, the classics uh, up until, say, 1900 were all theological, that, you know, as we were all uh, created uh, children of God, we were all created with the same human nature, and the way that that human nature responded to various conditions was, you know, dependent on whatever you felt the, 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 the key uh, determinant was. But we were all, you know, in certainly in uh, classic uh, Christian belief, we were all fallen people with one or another degree of capacity to uh, 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 receive divine grace. And so... From that basis, you could build up a sort of a universal uh, uh, study of man in a way that, uh, because, uh, int intriguingly enough, social scientists are among the most irreligious of uh, scientists, um, that you, they have gone away from that basis of human knowledge and attempted to replace it with what is apparently a very weak read indeed. Um, and I, I think that the, that the notion of 
You know, if you can't understand what, say, you know, a fellow American who happens to vote for Mike Huckabee is thinking, your degree to which you can rationally argue you can understand what a Brazilian tribesman is thinking is, uh, I think, fraught. Right. And, and that brings me to my a favorite folk example of American exceptionalism, which always causes me great amusement, which is the hack political expression where uh, American politicians will often uh, say, well, we're the only country in the world that dot, dot, dot. And then after dot, dot, dot comes something that is a basic cornerstone of any industrialized <laughs> democracy. So we're the only country where there are peaceful transfers of power or we're the only country where you get to go to the ballot box and kick out your leaders. And so uh, from the irresolvable to the uh, uh, ridiculous, uh, I think we have uh, covered why you, Ken, and your fellow Americans continue to be exceptional. Uh, indeed we do. So finally, the uh, pentacles on the walls, this time mixing with Renaissance artifacts of surveillance, tell us that we've entered into a strangely commingled hut in which the consulting occultist is here to meet us in the tradecraft hut, and in yet another recapitulation of a hint that we dropped in a previous segment, we're here to talk about the occult and espionage career of Christopher Marlowe. So, uh, Ken, perhaps you could... Give us the uh, 101 on Marlowe, and we'll go from there. Okay, Christopher Marlowe was uh, <laughs> had the great misfortune to be the second greatest playwright of the age of Shakespeare, and so therefore is mostly looked at through the lens of the guy you have to get through so you can get to awesome Shakespeare, which is unfair to him, because obviously he was a great playwright. Um, uh, the number of Shakespeare's plays that are sort of attempts at responses to Marlowe is, um, uh, is, is underestimated, uh, a, a sort of... Uh, people don't understand, for example, that The Merchant of Venice was Shakespeare's animal housing of the Jew of Malta. The degree to which Shakespeare and Marlowe are part of the same continuity is, I think, underplayed uh, by Shakespeareans, certainly, and then as a result by Marlovians who want to uh, shed the um, uh, bumptious Stratfordian from their, uh, from their wings. But Marlowe, of course, is classically famous for having written uh, Tamburlaine and thus inventing blank verse, which is to say fundamentally inventing uh, the uh, British dramatic uh, playwriting poetic tradition, and he is most famous to us as the guy who wrote uh, The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus, which is about uh, the deal um, uh, that a do German doctor named Faust makes with the devil for the love of the fair Marguerite and uh, for uh, uh, knowledge in uh, a period of seven years, at which point then the devil comes back and messes with him. So uh, he's already tied in with this sort of occult sensibility, and he was, as it turns out, part of a group of sort of uh, explorers of the occult world that hung out with the Earl of Northumberland, who was known as the Wizard Earl, because he sponsored alchemists and collected uh, books of magic and theurgy. He may or may not have been part of uh, the uh, sponsors of John Dee and uh, the Queen's Wizard, who we've talked about previously. And uh, Marlowe was part of that set uh, intellectually because he was um, a, uh, a well-educated Cambridge man and wanted uh, to sort of, you know, dissatisfied with the world as it was, wanted to know if it could be made better, possibly through um, magic and alchemy. Certainly, I suspect he began a lot of it as research for various uh, uh, works of uh, poetry and uh, drama, but then 
got uh, deeper into it as he discovered the overlap that alchemy could have with counterfeiting and that uh, magical uh, books could have with code breaking. And he was, uh, the, he was, as it turns out, also a spy for uh, the Privy Council who infiltrated Catholic groups in Cambridge and in uh, Douai in France and uh, in Flanders in order to send reports of their activities back to the Privy Council. And for those uh, activities, he needed a working knowledge of codes, he needed a working knowledge of counterfeiting, because that's uh, a lot of the ways that they um, uh, that they paid their, their way back and forth or attempted to destabilize uh, the, the, the British crown. And he needed to know about um, the sort of uh, generalized set of antinomian uh, catchphrases, uh, like uh, it, it was in, say, the 50s. There was a lot of overlap between various undergrounds and subcultures, and so therefore the overlap, for example, in uh, Britain between the uh, homosexual subculture and the communist subculture in the 30s uh, parallels itself, perhaps, with the overlap between the occult subculture and the um, uh, Catholic subculture in Britain, or the occult subculture and the Protestant subculture on the continent in Europe. And so Marlowe is a man who was able to move through all of those worlds because he was very good, apparently, at all of them. He was uh, a good enough occultist to have people actually believe that the devil was being summoned on stage during Dr. Faustus. He was a good enough uh, spy to not get caught by the bad guys in uh, Europe, or the good guys, depending on which side you're on, I suppose. And he was obviously a, a brilliant poet and playwright, and uh, therefore sort of magically goes through all of these universes in a way that is uh, both interesting and, it turns out, fairly evocative. And the core book on this is The Reckoning by Charles Nichol. Um, yeah, and that book uh, is as great a role-playing game book as has ever been produced with no role-playing game data. If you are running a game involving spies or the occult uh, in the uh, life of, in the court of Queen Elizabeth, uh, you will not regret picking up The Reckoning. The Reckoning referring to uh, Marlowe's death, uh, which Shakespeare famously summed up as a great reckoning in a little room. He was in what turned out to be a safe house, uh, which was not that safe, because as spies before him and since have learned, when you're in a safe house, the guys who can find you are the guys who run the safe house. And uh, Marlowe was killed in the presence of three people, each of whom, in the glorious fashion of uh, Elizabethan intelligence served a different um, uh, ambitious uh, nobleman for different uh, intelligence purposes. So you can uh, pin it on uh, the Earl of Essex, you can pin it on uh, Robert Cecil, or you can pin it on uh, the uh, surviving nephew of Sir Francis Walsingham, uh, Thomas Walsingham. And any one of them could have had Marlowe killed uh, because he knew too much or because he was sort of a loose cannon as people who tend to rattle around subcultures uh, tend to be. It's one of those deals where we've sent him over to infiltrate the Catholics, and we're not sure that he didn't do too good a job. One of the great issues in uh, theater studies is the extent to which theater is the result of ritual in the modern world, to which extent uh, theatrical presentations evolved from ritual practices. And certainly in the whole corpus of uh, plays that are uh, still performed today in the classical repertoire, although uh, Marlowe does not get staged nearly as often as Shakespeare, uh, Dr. Faustus is 
the biggest example because you it literally includes a summoning ritual on stage as part of the drama. And of course, that is something that you can use as a hook for fantastic storytelling, uh, either in the Elizabethan era or in the present day, because who knows what you might wind up accidentally summoning if you perform the play well enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the ritual notion of theater goes back to the fact that the theater in ancient Greece did begin as a ritual. It began as a ritual invocation of the god Dionysus uh, that happened at specific times during specific festivals, and it was so popular that they turned it into a show, <laughs> you know, proving that the Greeks <laughs> invented plenty of things about our modern culture. Uh, and so the notion to which, uh, the question to which extent does that survive into the modern theater? Are we still expressing the same urge to invoke Dionysus when we go see a, a, an Edward Albee play that uh, the Greeks did in the 6th century BC, or that even the Elizabethans did when they went to see uh, Faustus or they went to see uh, the Tempest, or any of the other plays in which there were actual magical rituals. Um, there was a guy who studied uh, Shakespeare's plays, and I, I think he found that three of them, so about 10%, have no magical component, uh, which seems uh, <laughs> like the, the sort of thing that uh, people would have noticed before. But he, uh, there, the, the degree to which the ritual and the magical and the occult suffuses even you know the sort of um, uh, straight bourgeois guys like Shakespeare is an interesting... Uh, point. Uh, Shakespeare is the source also of one of the terms used for the um, uh, the alleged occult brotherhood, including Christopher Marlowe, the School of Night, because Shakespeare uh, has uh, the King of Navarre in Love's Labored Lost say, black is the badge of hell, the hue of dungeons, and the school of night. And the excitable Shakespearean scholars, since they know that um, uh, Love's Labored Lost is basically making fun of uh, the... Um, intellectual circle around uh, Northumberland and possibly the one around Raleigh as well, uh, saying that if he's using the, the term School of Night in that play, that that must be what it was called, uh, uh, that what the occult of uh, buddies of Northumberland and, and Raleigh were, were the School of Night. And so you can, you know, take that for what it's worth. But it certainly makes a great evocative phrase to use in, um, uh, in games or in fiction. John M. Ford did a, a classically... Uh, underrated and classically good uh, spy novel called The School of Night, which, of course, turned on a Marlowe manuscript. Now, despite his uh, early death, uh, there is a very implausible school that uh, feels that uh, Christopher Marlowe was also Shakespeare. (laughs) Yes. That is, in fact, my favorite fake Shakespeare theory because it is so absolutely gonzo. It is, you know, it is way better than than the the, 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 the guys who are trying to um, uh, endlessly parse the mediocre poetry of the Earl of Oxford uh, to, to figure out <laughs> why he would publish all of his great stuff under someone else's name. Um, but the uh, but the Marlowe theory involves his death uh, as uh, one of the key elements because Shakespeare's career really takes off after Marlowe dies. And of course, that's probably just because, you know, people are really hungry for another guy who can write good blank verse, and so they start hiring Shakespeare more. But... Uh, the notion that it's Marlowe uses his connections within the Privy Council to fake his death, move to Italy, uh, probably to Verona, and then use the local color there to uh, write plays, I should point out, in entirely a different style. Yes. If, <laughs> Anyone... you, if you ever wish to refute this theory, aside from Marlowe being dead, <laughs> yes. you, you could can... just compare a couple of 
pages of uh, any Marlowe play and any Shakespeare play and see that they're quite patently written by different writers. Yes, the um, the, the the real uh, smoking gun there, or uh, bloody uh, poignard, I guess, is the treatment of women in Shakespeare, which is as human beings, and the treatment of women in Marlowe, which is as uh, talkative scenery. <laughs> the um, the differences are are just phenomenal to me, and the and the way it, it it's literally more believable that Alan Moore is Shakespeare than that Christopher Marlowe is Shakespeare. Uh, that uh, it's it's just a, a delightful uh, theory all the way around. But uh, yeah, the the the, the Marlowe is Shakespeare theory has everything to recommend it. It has uh, the connivance of Francis Bacon, which adds in the Baconian joy because his his uh, brother or cousin Anthony Bacon was one of the the sort of the cleaners for the Elizabethan spy service. Um, it has uh, you know. Uh, a guy living in incognito in Italy, you can tie in all kinds of other um, uh, subtext back and forth to Shakespeare's plays. Marlowe was uh, at, at least famously accused of being uh, homosexual um, and was widely quoted, although not obviously directly in anything in his handwriting, as saying, uh, um, no one who loves uh, young boys and tobacco can be all bad. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the sort of thing that uh, has the advantage of shocking sensibilities literally in every single decade since. Um, he uh, has a, uh, he has a, as, so he has a, as, as a great uh, number of, of sort of coded subtext that you can look for in Shakespeare if you want to decide that um, uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet is actually um, uh, a coded uh, love story between Romeo and Mercutio, or whatever else it is you want to say. Uh, there's there's all kinds of great things, and of course, Marlowe's background as a actual occultist means you can start looking for alchemical symbolism in Shakespeare without having to go the Francis Yates route of saying that Shakespeare was also a um, uh, student of alchemy because of his friendship with uh, the Earl of Southampton, who had, as it turned out, a pretty handsome alchemical library. Although I think it was because the Earl of Southampton was buying his library by the foot. So, what was the impact, if any, of Marlowe's espionage activities? Um, I think specifically, it didn't. I mean, he he was not like the the key guy who um uh, who uh, discovered an assassination attempt against uh, the Queen. He was not a um uh, a sort of a heroic spy in that sense. He was um basically just you know a working spy. He goes in and he uh is basically building the picture of what the various Catholic uh, conspirators, and in some cases Catholic traitors, like uh, William Stanley, were up to on uh, the the continent. It, it's So it's like he's like a, um, a CIA agent who is not the guy who brings back the plans for the Soviet death ray, but he's the guy who sort of tells you who all the active communists are in Belgium, or who all the active you know KGB agents are in Mexico. He's not a um, uh, he's not a, a legendary super spy. He's not 007, although, again, what a great uh, game or book or comic book that would make. Um, but he is, he, is, he is a good working spy. He, he, he does his job. He, his reports are, as far as anyone can tell, given the sort of obscurity of, of Elizabethan espionage, um, they were they were valuable and correct, which is more than you can get from most spies. And, and written in blank verse. <laughs> written in, in lovely blank verse. He... Um, he may or may not have been uh, infiltrated into uh, Arbella Stewart's uh, household as her tutor, um, because uh, her tutor was a man named Morley, and um, Marlowe, like everyone else in the 16th century, didn't spell his name the same way any two times running, and uh, it, it, you know signed himself Morley and Marley, and uh, was referred to as Merlin a couple of times by people who were making uh, a reference to his magical uh, proclivities. Um, and so he may have been uh, the tutor of uh, Mary, Queen of Scots' niece, 
and cousin of uh, the future King James, but that's that's a stretch, and it doesn't seem very likely because um, uh, we're pretty sure that he wasn't in uh, Scotland at the time. He was in London. But not the biggest stretch we've discussed in this segment. No. <laughs> yeah, compared to faked his own death and became Shakespeare, it was, it's, it's really nothing. But uh, again, Calvin Hoffman's Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare, totally recommended as... Uh, absolute crazy pants Shakespearean conspiracy theory. It's really, really good. Anthony Burgess also wrote a, a good uh, novel about uh, Marlowe's death called A Dead Man in Deptford, which I can recommend uh, very much. Uh, as, as you know, I mean, Burgess is, of course, a terrific, terrific novelist, but uh, Dead Man in Deptford really sort of, I, I think, to, to sort of get into the head of someone like Marlowe, you need to be someone like Burgess. You need to be a really uh, cutting-edge creative artist to really understand sort of Marlowe as a, as a human being. And those of us who are, who are, who are paddling along in, in happy mainstream uh, mediocrity, it, it's harder for us to sort of look into, look at, look out of Marlowe's eyes. Although I, I do like his, um, uh, his sort of swashbuckling devil may care attitude. Uh, not a lot of writers are, are, uh, have to give their sword up for stabbing people in the street. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I've always been very, very fond of Marlowe. And I think that he's an underrated, underrated playwright, uh, uh, the Jew of Malta is obviously <laughs> grotesque, but um, uh, Faustus is great. Uh, Tamburlaine is terrific, and uh, the uh, Massacre at Paris is uh, is one of the great pieces of sort of um, early splatter fic, I guess. Right, and basically he's come down to us in in lore as the Rolling Stones to Shakespeare's Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, and which getting killed in a bar fight, uh, possibly as a result of an espionage conspiracy, is a great way to uh, seal that reputation. I, I think that the evidence that Nickel uh, lays out makes that his death is definitely the result of an espionage conspiracy. And the question is, which espionage conspiracy is where the, con- the, the controversy is? The bar fight is very clearly a cover story that was put out. Uh, because they tried a couple of other cover stories that he died of plague or that he died um, uh, basically um, in a uh, stabbed by a jealous lover uh, over a boy uh, as an attempt to sort of do the call back to his reputation as a, a very much um, uh, uh, shameless uh, libertine. Well, as that makes it sound uh, safer for the two of us to repair to a bar without getting stabbed by a rapier or poniard, I think perhaps now is the time to uh, bring this episode to its inevitable conclusion. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Make Faustian bargains with us at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.